Live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Phil Baker, and he's just published a book, really fascinating book, covering the early church, early Christian church, titled Faithful Witness, the Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom, published October 26, 2021. And this is not Phil Baker's first book. He also published New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ in 2016. And Phil lives in Houston, Texas with his wife, two children, and dog. He's the host of the podcast, Reclaiming the Faith, and also the book I earlier mentioned. He's the son of a Christian counselor and holds a BA in Christianity and Psychology from Houston Baptist University and received an MRE from the West Coast Bible College and Seminary. And his website is www.philsbaker.com. So you can follow up with some of the stuff. He's a producer and singer of several albums, too, so you can look into his music. But we're going to talk about this fascinating book today, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. And so, Phil Baker, are you there? Yes, sir. Man, it's so great to be on with you, William. And like I told you earlier, man, I've just been so blessed by your show. And man, yeah, just keep up the great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you on. And uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. I really kind of think that Christian and Christianity in general don't focus on the early church enough. So you really have a biblically based analysis of this kind of theology of martyrdom. Can you talk about your background and what led you to write Faithful Witness? Yeah, uh, you know, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and um, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, but as I went to uh, my undergrad at HBU, like you said, um, uh, th that was very good for me as well. I began to kind of challenge my own spiritual worldview when I got into the early Christian writings, the anti-Nicene Christian writings, which are the writings from the first 300 years of the church. So this is before uh, people like Augustine. This is before um, Constantine's true influence began. Uh, so, yeah, and, and what I found is that a lot of these writings were kept from me in my undergrad and even in my seminary work. We discussed some of the heresies in in the church from the Gnostics, things like docetism, things like um, Marcionism, uh, Valentinius, you know, these kind of early Gnostic heresies. But we didn't really get into the the teachings of the early church, which are voluminous. Um, and so I began to get into that and it rocked me because. Growing up Southern Baptist, of course, you know, they hold a very high view of, of the scriptures, which is great. But I began to see that um, my church there, and I don't want to speak for all Southern Baptists, but my church there began to find ways to get around keeping the words of Jesus. And I thought that was kind of strange from this, you know, words from the Sermon on the Mount, like basic things, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And um, the early Christians took that very simply and very seriously. And that's kind of what led me to write my uh, first book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. As I continue, you know, I've, I've had a fascination with martyrdom. Uh, that, that scare us. You know, uh, I would not want to get eaten by a crocodile. And that almost kind of kept me from going to Africa the first time I went there. In 2004, I was just sure I'd be eaten, but I love watching crocodile documentaries. Uh, I don't know. So um, this idea of martyrdom, dying for our faith, has really been fascinating to me, even though it, it kind of scares me to a degree. And um, so I've done a lot of research 
on that, what the early church believed on that. And just one day at the at the uh, breakfast table uh, a few months ago, just kind of popped into my head an outline for the book. But I wanted to do something that was different than books like Fox's Book of Martyrs or I Am In or Jesus Freaks Volume 1 and 2, because those books are fantastic. They're telling more of the stories of martyrdom. I wanted to write a book about why rather than the what happened. What, what do they believe that led them to do that? Why did they choose to die for their enemies rather than picking up the sword? It's really interesting. Tertullian writes around 200. He's a, um, an elder in uh, the church at Carthage, North Africa, and he's writing an apology to the uh, Roman emperor around 200. It's actually like 197. And in it, he basically makes this argument that they're, the Christians are so numerous throughout the empire that if they wanted to, they could rebel and revolt against the empire and destroy it. But they don't. And he's like, don't you see, we're not a threat to y'all. You know, in one sense, we are because your temples are going empty. You know, we're just by converting people. Um, but we're not actually trying to kill any of you. We, we, we love y'all. We pray for y'all. We lay down our lives to bring y'all into the kingdom. So that's kind of uh, what led me to write the book, getting into the why, the whys, the theological whys behind their actions. And that really starts with the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, really the original martyr from this starting religion right there at uh, back in Jerusalem. So maybe we can start discussing about really what he taught and what he did. Sure, sure. Uh, the early Christians believed that Jesus is God. He is the Lord God. And the way that they would prove that in their early arguments is by using the Old Testament. They would go through the prophecies surrounding the Lord God and how the Lord God would at some point show up on the earth and how how his influence on the earth would affect his followers. And so you see that in works like Justin Martyr's first apology, uh, his dialogue with Trypho the Jew. This is all around the year 160 or so. And so, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, William, the, um, the influence of Jesus was paramount in shaping the behaviors of the Christians because they believed that Christ is our example. Jesus was our example. Being the Lord God, he's the embodiment of righteousness. He's the embodiment of holiness. He's the embodiment of love. And so in the first chapter of my book, I start in Genesis and I go all the way to Revelation showing that scripture prophesied that the Lord God himself would come and die for his enemies to bring them back into the family of God. So I go through many prophecies there and I display how there is this way of the lamb that even begins in Genesis, this way of the Lord, which is the way of the lamb. And it's a way of life as well. It's, it's the way of light. It's contrasted to the way of death, contrasted to the way of darkness, contrasted to the way of the world. And this way is counterintuitive in one sense, uh, it's foolishness to the world, it's weakness, and yet it is the power of God. The cross, as Paul says, is the power of God. It's the gospel, you know, dying for our enemies. And so uh, as they saw Jesus walk, they tried to walk after him. Being a disciple, when Jesus said, follow, or being, being a rabbi, rather, when Jesus said, follow me to, his, to these people that were coming up to him, 
they understood it being in a first century Hebrew context that he was calling them to be a disciple. And disciple wants to do more than just learn what the rabbi teaches. He wants to become like the rabbi. And uh, Jesus is saying, yeah, I believe that through my power, you can become like me. Uh, John, First John chapter one, or sorry, first John chapter two, verse six, uh, John writes, if anyone claims to be in Jesus, he must walk as Jesus walked. And that's like living as Jesus lived. And so they too, because of the example set by Jesus, the Lord God, the ultimate teacher, uh, walked as Jesus walked into the earth, uh, through the earth to um, bring his enemies into his family. And so that's kind of the bridge between chapters one and two. I actually show in chapter two, uh, the disciples living like Jesus uh, through the book of Acts. I highlight first Peter in the first uh, for, for the most part, the first uh, five chapters of Acts. And then I highlight Paul, uh, for the most part, again, from like Acts 9 to the end. Of course, Peter shows up in between those chapters, chapters 5 and 9. And, and Paul, you actually see him in uh, chapter 7, which is very in, a very important chapter. Uh, but Anyway, yeah, chapter two is showing that the disciples really took Jesus seriously and by the power of the Holy Spirit um, laid down their lives for their enemies. Right. And all 11, except John, according to tradition, have, were martyred. So the original uh, disciples, other than um, Judas and, and John, and, all, and there's stories about them dispersing to different places and all being killed, right? Yeah, there are stories. Um, we're not able to say with certainty that all 11 literally were martyred. Uh, and if you're including Matthias or Matthias, uh, all 12, we can say with with almost absolute certainty that James, the brother of of Jesus, James, the brother of John, Paul and Peter were martyred. Um, we have really good evidence for that. There are some spur spurious documents, uh, like in the writings of Hippolytus, but these are not really accredited to Hippolytus. It's kind of like pseudepigraphal, someone putting their name, Hippolytus's name on it, uh, giving us uh, how all the apostles died, but there's really not very good evidence. Uh, through writings from people like um, Eusebius, uh, people uh, even that were opposed to the faith um, in the first century. Uh, and I'm, I can't believe I'm having trouble with his name right now, but there was a man who worked for the Roman government who was a Jew. Oh, it's he, Josephus. Yeah, Josephus. Thank you so much. Like he talks about James, the brother of Jesus's martyrdom right. uh, in very great detail, which is actually where Eusebius is pulling from. So he's using, he's using Josephus as his source. And I actually just did a podcast about this that Josephus viewed the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as basically discipline to the Jews for them killing James the Just, which is Jesus's brother, which is kind of interesting given that Josephus viewed the Christians as like apostates basically from Judaism. Right. And James was thrown off of the Temple Mount. So very yes. dramatic uh, ending close to it. I think Stephen was martyred too, somewhere yeah. near the temple, if I remember correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned him in your book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So I, I was not you, quoting him as one of the apostles, right? He was he was a deacon in the church, but we're absolutely certain he got martyred as well. Yeah, he was confronting the Sanhedrin uh, in a style very similar to Jesus. There are so many similarities between uh, Stephen and Jesus, uh, and he's dragged outside of the temple and stoned to death. And Paul is there kind of uh, holding coats. And chapter three of my book, or sorry, chapter four of my book, it's called The Perfection of Martyrdom. Uh, it actually shows how that martyrdom of Stephen impacted Paul in such a profound way that it influenced several chapters of 2 Corinthians. I actually show how uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 3 through 5, um, Paul is drawing from that incident, what he saw in Stephen as Stephen is shining um, and living like Jesus. So we can get into that quite well, a bit. Well, we should, because want, but, I think it's important yeah. because Paul— was holding on to the robes of the people who stoned Stephen. So yeah. it's before his road to Damascus event. And right. so it's interesting that he, after his road to Damascus, he's looking back at that event with a different set of eyes. Absolutely. You know, there are three people that shine like angels, basically, in, in the Bible. Three people that shine. One is Moses. The next is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then Stephen shines. Chapter five of Acts or chapter six of Acts, rather, says that he had the face of an angel. So he's he's shining. And then he rebukes the uh, Sanhedrin for many things, one being worship like of evil angels, uh, but how they they held the temple above uh, the Lord himself, and they begin to stone him. And it's interesting in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul highlights Moses and how Moses' face shine, shined or shone. And he says that we have a greater ministry than Moses. So how much more should we with unveiled faces bear the image of the Lord because we're being transformed into his image from glory to glory uh, by the Spirit. And then he goes to say how this, this light that's within us, this is not in a new age kind of sense, but he's talking about the power of God, the glory of God, shines through us like jars of clay. The more that we are uh, persecuted, basically, for his sake, the more this light is shining to unbelievers so that they, their eyes can no longer be blinded by the God of this world, speaking of Satan, and they can come into the family of God. And so he's saying all day long we're de being delivered over to death, but it's for your sakes. There's just a lot of powerful stuff there. That was one of the, for me, just personally, most impactful chapters that, that I wrote, chapter four, about the perfection of martyrdom. Right. And so it's interesting in your book that one of the things that I learned is that they were thinking about it before um, Constantine. They were thinking about martyrdom, but, but not as just giving yourself up. So they're looking at the, the early, I think it was Ignatius or one of the early writers was talking about it, but not to have a cheap kind of like throw yourself off. And I think you can see that exemplified in Paul because he's always kind of running away. He's being led. The Jews are kind of coming after him. He gets let down from the building in the uh, in the basket. So he's trying to get away until the, the end. But I thought that was interesting. Can you kind of expand or expound upon that and why what they thought about his martyrdom? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Aristides in 125, he's writing a um, an apology to the emperor named Hadrian, who is actually in a weird secret society. But that's a totally different thing. But uh, well, not really, not really, because Hadrian's very important in a lot of ways. He mm -hmm. was also a homosexual who had his ideal child and Antonus, and it still pervades those kind of things mm -hmm. still pervade today. So Hadrian 
actually is pretty, I think, uh, important in the context of the rise of Christianity. But sorry to interrupt. No, 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 you're good. Um, so in, in that apology, Aristides is contrasting the beliefs of the Romans to those of the Greeks and to those of the barbarians and Jews. And then he contrasts them to the Christians. And he says that the Christians follow the commands of Christ with much, much care. They turn their enemies to friends. And it's, it's very powerful when, when we see these Christians following the commands of Christ. But one of them uh, was that, that Jesus gave to his disciples, when they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. So you see the Christians fleeing first. A really great example of this uh, would be the life of, of Polycarp. And there's, a, there's an early Christian, there's a second century document called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And it shows him being persecuted. They're hunting him down and he flees. He flees from city to city. But when you're basically not able to go any further, when you're surrounded, then you accept it and you try to... The, the phrase in, um, in the martyrdom of Polycarp is play the man. So you try to act as much like Christ as possible. And so Polycarp does. He spends like two hours praying in front of his uh, persecutors and, and praying for them as well. It's, it's really fascinating. Another reason why we don't want to seek out martyrdom uh, would be that people will kill you. If you're a martyr, you were killed by someone. You don't want someone to incur the guilt of murder, right? And so we don't want to put that on them. If it, if it comes to that place where we have to, then we accept it. But we don't want other people to commit sin for our benefit. Like that, that's not, that's not the way of Jesus at all. You know, give without wanting anything in return, like the Sermon on the Mount talks about. So if we're doing something good uh, that causes someone else to stumble, that doesn't really um, line up with the values of Jesus. Right. And it is, the Polycarp is really fascinating because it's a very solemn event. He's 86, I think. And At he's least. being brought. Yeah. So he's an older guy and he just kind of goes willingly. And is the impression of the people surrounding him are they're kind of in awe. It's, it's like he's really just going to go through. And then there's kind of a miracle of the fire not burning him. But uh, that's, a, that's a fascinating little uh, part of your book where you go through like this is kind of the how a martyrdom is uh, idealized or an ideal situation, not just somebody getting you know shot or something like that. Sure. Yeah, and uh, chapter three is called the lifestyle of martyrdom, and um, so one of the things that the early Christians talked about is, and that that's actually a chapter where we see that they're not encouraging people to just seek out martyrdom, but they say like. If you're really following the commands of Christ, if you're denying yourself and carrying your cross daily, like even if you never actually get killed for Jesus, you're a martyr as well. Like you're laying down your life for the gospel in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so those kind of people should be considered uh, martyrs as well. And you could think about more of a modern day example. And I give this one of Elizabeth Elliot. You know, her, her husband, Jim Elliot, is pretty famous for going to the Alcas, uh, people down uh, near the Amazon. And he was murdered along with Nate Saint and some others. Uh, but Elizabeth, the wife of Jim Elliot, leaves after the murder, but comes back to the people. And Nate Saint's uh, daughter does, too. And so they live, and because of their example, 
to continue to lay down their life for Jesus, basically the entire Aka village comes back. This is uh, shown in a movie called The Way, sorry, The End of the Spear, if y'all want to check that out. It's a really, really great movie. Yeah, so you talk about that those uh, evangelists are going to, what, Ecuador, into mm-hmm. the jungle there, yeah. and tragically lost all their lives, or five guys died. Right. And then, but then the, the still kind of the the uh, missionaries still come back. That's pretty remarkable. So the wife does. Yeah. So, fascinating story. I mean, so what other kind of things happened around that 300 years before Constantine in regarding this martyrdom? I mean, we know Paul and Peter went to Rome, right? Were they martyred by, it wasn't by Gaius. It was uh, Nero. Nero, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's great. Um, so one of the reasons that they think uh, that the early Christians thought that uh, Peter went to Rome is because of this man that we're introduced to in Acts chapter eight, uh, named Simon Magus. So you have this first. Um, well, really, they believe like Irenaeus believes that Simon Magus is the founder of Gnosticism, and so Peter goes there to confront. Uh, Simon Magus. And of course, uh, in 64 uh, AD, Nero sets Rome on fire. And Tacitus, a Roman uh, historian, talks about what it was like because Nero blames the Christians. The Christians are then set on fire like lampposts lining the the Roman roads. Um, They're having animal skins sewn to them, uh, eaten by wild beasts. It's just horrific, horrific. Um, and so Christians there are, are being destroyed, but they're continuing to, to follow the commands of Jesus. And uh, Christianity just spreads like wildfire uh, for the next 300 years. And by the time of Constantine, uh, with the Edict of Milan in 313, uh, even anti-Christian uh, historians like Bart Ehrman, admit that a tenth of the Roman Empire had become followers of Jesus by that time. This is before Constantine. And of course, if we can talk about Constantine a little bit here, I don't believe Constantine was a Christian at all. Uh, He just made Christianity legal. He didn't really um, influence the Council of Nicaea very much. Uh, He just wanted to get certain doctrines in line, like the deity of Christ, which was already believed by all Christians uh, throughout the world. But uh, Constantine began to put Christians on a certain preferred bishops on Rome's payroll. So basically your tax money was going to pay certain bishops. What could go wrong with that? Right. And uh, began to change the temples, uh, the pagan temples into Christian temples. So that was really bad. But things got even worse in 380 with Theodosius, where he basically makes Christianity the religion of Rome. And yet, even still, there are Christians that are holding to the doctrines of Christ very simply and seriously. Things go haywire, in my opinion, in 412, where Augustine began to promote uh, Christians killing even other Christians and even promoting the torture of Christians so that they would repent. Uh, There's a lot we could talk about there in in history and Augustine's influence upon the Protestant Reformation with uh, Martin Luther being an Augustinian monk and Calvin being a hardcore disciple of Augustine as well. But um, yeah, I think things really, really changed, uh, particularly like a view of martyrdom changed around 412 there. But before that, it's basically, I'm sorry, go ahead. man. I was just going to say that inquisitional sensibility didn't start 
uh, with the Catholics. It was there much earlier. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's more 412. And you see uh, in Augustine, his writings uh, in 416, uh, where he's promoting the torture of the Donatists, which is kind of like a, a group that's holding more to some of the earlier uh, practices of Christianity, and they're not coming in line with Augustine. He tries several times to get them to change, like pleading with them. But eventually he's like, all right, this is too much. We can't have a fractured empire because, you know, the uh, the Visigoths under King Ulrich sacked Rome in 412, and they're very nervous about Rome falling apart. Ironically, it does about 50 years later. Try as August, Augustine did, you know, so. Right. And I mean, a lot of that uh, fighting and squabbling among Christians fought. Uh, and so I think it's some people put the rise of Islam in that context because they were fighting among themselves in Egypt, largely a Christianized kind of Middle East. But then the Muslims came in and they're all weakened by fighting amongst themselves. Probably another story. Uh, but a lot of martyrs, a lot of martyrdoms there in Islam context, outside of the context of your book. So the Rome, I mean, I think that Peter was in Rome. There's an apocryphal story. I think it's the gospel of Peter while he's contesting with Simon Magus in Rome. And actually, he, Simon Magus is and really is floating around Rome. And Peter supposedly, you know, uh, prevents him from flying and he, he falls to the earth and dies. I don't know if you've heard that story. Yeah, I don't well, really give much credence to that particular okay, well, yeah. okay, well, it's just a story. <laughs> yeah. Apocrypha is the Apocrypha for a reason. Yeah. But um, talk about some of those kind of earlier uh, martyrs. I mean, you do cover a lot of space. I mean, you go from there, but you do cover what you think might be martyrdom in the present or end times too, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The The early Christians, although they had different beliefs about the millennium, like the... Uh, the millennial reign of Christ, those thousand years. For the first, um, for the first two hundred and fifty years, they're all premillennial. So they believe that Jesus will return to Earth and then set up the millennial reign. Uh, that begins to change around two fifty with a couple of writers, Commodianus and Victorianus, or Vic Victorinus, um, who kind of have more of an amillennial. Like it's just kind of there's no literal thousand year reign, but all of them. All of them believed in a pre-tribulational, sorry, a post, a post-tribulational uh, return of Jesus. So uh, you could also align this with like a pre-wrath view. So uh, before the millennial reign of Christ uh, really goes off, the Christians have been being persecuted by whoever this Antichrist is. So they differ on some timing of things, but they all believe that Christians will be around for the Antichrist. And, um, you know, one of the main groups that God is trying to reach during that time, it seems, would be the Jewish people. And so my contention is that one of the main reasons why uh, God allows Christians to go through the time of the Antichrist is to make an, a, a final appeal to Jewish unbelieving people uh, who maybe haven't taken the mark of the beast yet, but uh, well, if they, they guess they couldn't have taken the mark of the beast yet because those people unfortunately burn forever in the lake of fire eventually. So these Jews that are kind of on the fence, sort of the way Stephen was making an appeal to the Jews, and that had an effect on Paul, right? We history seems to repeat itself, right? And so it seems like God uses the, the Christians to make this final appeal to the Jews so that they're ready for when Jesus returns. And they'll say, you know, 
blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they mourn over the one whom they have pierced. Fascinating. Yeah. So the end times does have a theme of martyrdom too, though, right? Isn't there? I thought Revelation talked about how they will be the martyrs of Christ uh, after his return, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we see martyrs show up all th- that word martyr or witness show up all through Revelation. Uh, that's a main theme. You, you see it introduced in chapter two, talking about a guy named Antipas, who tradition is that Antipas was uh, basically slow roasted in a bronze bull. Uh, and Jesus calls Antipas my faithful witness. Um, Jesus is called the faithful witness in chapter one. So we have the faithful witness, and now we're called to be faithful witnesses. Uh, the Those who have been beheaded or martyred because of their testimony of Jesus are seen in Re- uh, Revelation chapter five. Uh, we see martyrs again in chapter 12, uh, these witnesses uh, that are doing battle with the devil during the Antichrist's reign. And they overcome him, which is a term of victorious, like think uh, games, like gladiatorial games. The winner of that is an overcomer. Uh, they have victory, which is that word Nike, basically, over the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, because they did not love their life even in the face of death. So in the, that's chapter 12. And chapter 13 goes into kind of a closer look at the reign and the terror of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And so you have Christians again being killed because they refuse to worship the beast or take his mark. Right. So Revelation also, if I remember, there was a Christ from heaven mentions a martyr at Pergamon, right? This house that's Antipas. Yeah, that's Antipas. Okay, I forgot. Sorry. But yeah, so it's it's there. So you see that martyrdom in your book at the ending part of our known kind of New Testament. Um, yeah, so I mean, you just see that theme is really going through the books, even to the really kind of maybe the present. I mean, would you... How would you kind of uh, typify what kind of martyrdoms would be kind of in the end time period? I mean, you talk about Darby and the premillennial. Are what's your? Are you a premillennial, a millennial, postmillennial? Do you have an outlook? I'm. I'm. Po- I guess I would be more pre-wrath, premillennial. Gotcha. So, so uh, Christians are going to be around during the uh, during the tribulation period. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I kind of switch between post-trib and pre-wrath, but but Jesus will come in and usher in a literal thousand years. I believe this this term rapture, uh, this catching up happens at the return of Christ. So uh, kind of like when in uh, the triumphal entry, all right, think in the Gospels, Jesus is coming in from Bethany and he's coming down a mountain. And as he's coming down, people come, his disciples, some come out of the city to welcome him. Then they go together into the city where he turns over the tables. Right. I think that's kind of a picture of what happens. So we come out to meet him in the air. uh, And that's kind of a Greek picture of uh, a Greek and Roman picture of what would happen when a king would enter the city. People would come out and like usher him in, welcome him in. Uh, and so we see the king coming down and the people, we get caught up to him and follow him down where he, when he touches ground and this, 
I don't think it's going to be like one day period, the day of the Lord. I think the day of the Lord can be a very long period. We see that in in um, the Gospels quite well. If if I can give one example, sorry to nerd out a little bit. No, Stop go. Please go. Please continue. But like uh, the last prophecy in the Bible, uh, sorry, in the Old Testament, the very last prophecy is in Malachi chapter four. And it talks about how before the day of the Lord happens, the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah will come. Right. And so Jesus in Matthew 12 says that John the Baptist was an Elijah type. And so what Jesus is basically saying there is that he is in the day of the Lord. Now, his ministry was about three and a half years, most people believe. So it's interesting that Jesus's ministry is for about three and a half years. Then he's killed. The Antichrist according to a lot of people, has a ministry, quote-unquote ministry, for about three and a half years, and then he suffers this mortal head wound. Then somehow it's healed. He proclaims himself to be God. Uh, so I think, yeah, there's going to be a lot of similarities between the Antichrist, his ministry, and what Jesus did, but it's going to be kind of flipped on its head but uh, and very evil. But I think he's actually going to be trying to fulfill a lot of the prophecies uh, that Jesus did, because I think his main target is the Jewish people. Of course, he wants to see everybody burn. But I think his main target is to get as many Jews as possible uh, to take his mark. And so to do that, he has to convince them that he's the Messiah. So he's going to have to be seemingly fulfilling a lot of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Right. I mean, it's 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 going to be pretty incredible. I mean, I think it says Christ says, though those days were not shortened, there would be no life left on Earth. So mm -hmm. it's pretty grim era, kind of like worldwide uh, kind of Nazi, you know, Holocaust type stuff. So, oh, yeah. I, I don't I don't know if it's going to be like that at the beginning. I think this guy is going to be viewed very much like a savior to the world in many ways. But once he dies and is resurrected, I think the gloves really come off. And it becomes like Nazism to the nth degree. Right, and then kind of Nazism is very much close to the satanic values. It has all the satanic values in integrated into it. So it's yeah, a precursor, a foreshadow. That's right. And just like uh, the spirit of God indwells Jesus, the spirit of the devil indwells the Antichrist. This really goes back to... Uh, the first prophecy in the Bible, which is called the Proto-Euangelion, the, the, the first gospel. This is in Genesis chapter 3. And in, in the, uh, the Lord God talks to Adam and he gives a curse to Adam. You know, the, the, the ground is cursed because of you. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow, all that kind of stuff. Then he says to the woman, you know, you're going to have increased pains in childbirth. Then he says to the serpent that the seed of the woman, and in the Greek, in the Septuagint, it's sperma, which, of course, sounds a lot like, you know, sperm. And so that's a seed. This is an offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the sperma of this Nakash or, you know, the serpent. And so somehow this serpent is going to have offspring. And I don't get into the whole, like, descendants of Cain stuff. That's, that's not what I think that's about. I think it's about the Antichrist. Yeah. interesting great discussion fascinating book uh is there anything you'd like to add anything i missed before we wrap it up yeah um so i don't think any of this like when we're getting into the why 
why did they do that? I don't think martyrdom specifically in a, in a manner that's consistent with the life and teachings of Jesus, it doesn't make any sense if there's not a resurrection. You know, I can understand killing your enemies and dying in the means of, of or in the, in the midst of a battle, you know, to protect your family. Like that totally makes sense from a worldly point of view. I mean, protect your family, right? But laying down your lives for your enemy's sake doesn't make any sense at all if this is all there is. If there's no resurrection of the flesh and so uh, a bodily resurrection and an eternal um, either reward or punishment in a sense. So I spend the epilogue talking about the resurrection and I try to defend the resurrection with biblical proof the way an early Christian would. Um, I, I point people to a book by Michael Lee Kona. Uh, and Gary Habermas, which I think everybody should read. It's, it's incredibly long. I think it's like 700 pages or so, but it's, it's easy to read. Anyway, if I can give one proof for the resurrection in terms of how the Bible was prophesying resurrection from the very beginning, it, can I do that real yeah. quick? Oh, yeah, please. All right. So I would encourage people to look at Genesis chapter one. I don't believe Genesis chapter one is meant to be looked at as a science book. Uh, a biology book. It's 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 a theology chapter. It's not about like how things happen. It's about why and who. And so, if we look at the days of creation, something that many people have found uh, that that um, people that are antagonistic to the gospel may use to discredit Genesis is that you see the sun created on day four, but seed bearing plants created on day three. And they're like, well, clearly that's ridiculous. You know, how, how can you have uh, plants? You know, how can you have photosynthesis happening without a sun? How can they grow? And one of the biblical writers, his name is Theophilus. He writes in uh, 180 about how this was specifically written by God to show that life does not come from the sun. Life comes from God. Now, what's really interesting then is that you have the first miracle of the Bible outside of, you know, let there be light or whatever. But the first supernatural event happens on the third day. So you have life coming out of the ground on the third day without a sun. So a miraculous thing happens there. We see John pick up on this language as well in chapter 2. It's really weird. He, he, he details Jesus's first miracle in John chapter two by introducing that chapter saying uh, on the third day, on the third day. And scholars have debated, why is this? This is so weird. But because if you're counting the actual days of, of Jesus's ministry, it's, it doesn't seem like it's the third day. So why does he say this? Well, in, in, in John chapter two, he's at a wedding. He's at a wedding in, in a village called Cana, and the host runs out of wine. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, like, what are you going to do about this? Because this is a major social faux pas. Jesus says, woman, my time has not yet come. What's Jesus thinking about? We don't know. Perhaps he's thinking about his own wedding, but uh, which gets detailed in uh, Revelation chapter 20, by the way. But Mary says to the attendants, the servants, do whatever he tells you. Jesus, in the sight of many attendants, turns six, at least 20-gallon jars of ceremonial uh, water into wine. 
on the third day. And John says this was the first of his signs where he manifested his glory to his disciples and they believed in him. It's interesting that on the third day you have this um, this vine, this 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 uh, crop from the ground having a miracle there on the third day, which of course is telegraphing the resurrection of Jesus, which again happens on the third day. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Fascinating. And so where's um, where's the best place for people to get faithful witness? Where would you recommend people go? Yeah, I know people have a lot of problems with Amazon. If you don't want to go to Amazon, you can find it on Barnes & Noble. Pretty much anywhere you can get digital books, you can find it there. Anywhere you can get audio books, you can find it there. But an easy resource would be Amazon. You can get paperback, print-on-demand version, digital version, and audio version there. So it is. you do have an audio book, correct? Yes, sir. Cool. And then your website, philsbaker.com. People can reach out to you or contact you through your website, correct? If they have any yeah, questions. Absolutely. And again, like I have a podcast called Reclaiming the Faith, where uh, actually the latest one, I detailed that uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and what the early Christians thought about that, how they approached that. I'll put that in the show notes, too. So I'll put a link to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank Again, you. your website is Phil S. Baker. And the title of the book is Faithful Witness, the Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom, just published October 26, 2021. So, Phil, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, William. All right, take care. Stay there. Stay there. All right, that was perfect. 41 minutes.